1: and we're live hello everybody today is friday august 20th 2021.
0: okay Uh, okay so so it's so first of all let me just there's a lot going on today a lot going on today so first of all it's still cheese night okay so i like just because ben and kate are not here it's still cheese night did you bring anything Genevieve? Cheese, cheesy?
1: Um, cheesy seltzer. <laughs> oh, Cheesy seltzer.
0: Right? <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they'll, they'll, they'll flavor seltzer with anything these days. Um, I, because I, it's cheese night, I just want to show everyone I have cheese fermenting right now. I have this. Can everyone see this? This is um, my goat's cheese that's fermenting, and it looks really gross. But even though it looks really gross, it smells really gross. <laughs> uh, and, um, and you can you see it in there can you see the the curds
2: yeah. yes uh,
0: yeah it's really gross isn't it and yeah. i'm gonna have i may i may have to but i may have to um uh, click off and 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 remove this from the room because it's it's making me nauseous oh, um goodness. so yeah geez, I, but, but but also i want to be it's kids night and kids night so Ben is traveling, so he couldn't make it tonight. And Kate said something like she had something better to do. Um, and so she's not She's not here. So Genevieve and I, like, there are no rules, OK? We get to do it every we want. And I just want you to know, everyone, this is not ginger ale. This has alcohol in it. So I'm like, drinking alcohol and loving it.
1: <laughs> We're creating ah. our own norms.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, like, there are no norms. It's kids' night. Um, are you a little nervous, Genevieve, about, like, not, not,
1: not no, because no. I'm
0: I'm extremely nervous. I feel, I feel, I do feel like, do you feel like this is the case? Like, Ben, I feel like is the Ben and Kate are the parents. Very much right? so. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. Right. Um, you know, um, you know, let, let's just say, Ben's the dad, Kate's the mom. I feel like I'm the younger brother, and you're the old, you're the older responsible sister. So it?
1: what what's going to happen is I'm going to get blamed for everything that goes down tonight <laughs> because Can we it? are we're lucky enough to be joined by Stephen Wertheim.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, 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 so I, I wanna I wanna say that I'm I'm really I'm extremely um, um, happy that we that Stephen. Wertheim, who is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, is that is that, yeah. is that um, uh, um, who um, is joining us today? Um, Stephen is he's, he's extraordinarily smart, um, a great historian of American foreign policy, who has um, uh, kind of um, really um pivoted to a kind of a public facing role talking about um uh important issues in american foreign policy um and um advocating i think broadly speaking for a less i want to put it the right way a less interventionist um I, i that's why i didn't say isolationist um i said less interventionist military interventionist foreign policy so um um so first of all welcome
2: thank you much um given what's transpired so far i'm surprised your uh glass is full and not almost empty that's true
1: but
0: it it, it, is like my third right um uh, so so um okay so you uh, so um genevieve can you put the 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 link in the um uh in the in the chat so yeah, so, so Stephen wrote uh, uh, this really terrific uh, op-ed in the Washington Post um, uh, a couple of days ago. And I just want to um, uh, just read the first um, sentence of its uh, unbelievably good um, uh, opening. It begins saying, um, you don't get to lose a war and expect the result to look like you've won it. Um, which uh, I think is a is a like really is a very powerful statement. I was wondering if you could um, talk about um, the argument you make in in that piece.
2: Well, observing the events of the last week, um, a very difficult period, um, I noticed how many prominent American commentators and politicians seem to not accept that we've lost the war that we set out to wage and that the result of that will be something not under our control, not to our liking. Uh, And fundamentally there is no plausible uh, way to lose a war to the Taliban that is not accompanied with terrible events um i i I cannot think of of how you do that so uh unless you believe that the taliban are magnanimous and you know ready to do wonderful things when they take power Uh, so there are plenty of you know legitimate criticisms we might make about you know exactly what the biden administration knew and when but the fact is that i think what's motivated a lot of the The outcry, especially in the media uh, and on Capitol Hill over recent days has been an unwillingness to believe that we've actually lost this war, that nothing was gonna change that fact within the realm of plausibility. Uh, And now we have to learn from that and accept defeat rather than perpetuate a myth that the war was winnable if only it took one more year, five more years, 10 more years or anything,
0: right? So, so um, the 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 it, it is actually quite striking to me. I, I, I in reading the piece that um, you quote extremely well-respected foreign policy people who really um, uh, believe that um, it is winnable. That uh, it's salvageable, or um, that we do we either need to stay, or maybe we even need to go back in. Um, Do you does it ever bother you or make you question yourself when, like on the one hand, you like your eye, you know, your eyes are telling you one thing, so to speak, and then these people who are extremely experienced. uh, are saying, no, 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 no. If you really, it, you know, I've been there, I've been a general, you know. It, it, what, what is that? How does that, how do you react to that?
2: Well, it's been a long time. Uh, we've had a long time to analyze uh, the US war in Afghanistan. Decade. So the arguments are familiar to me. Uh, and there are plenty of people who uh, have been contesting this. For some time. And so, you know, I've formed a judgment about whether the war should end uh, or not. And so it wasn't a shock to me to see very prominent people, um, including the president of the Council on Foreign Relations or Bill Kristol or Lieutenant General McMaster, Trump's former national security advisor, say what they were saying over the course of the last week. Um, and there's, you know, fundamentally that there's a reason people, um, we've been waging the war for two decades unsuccessfully and and losing more and more ground to the Taliban. It's because people in positions of authority, uh, are, uh, defying the facts, uh, and defying good argumentation, uh, to advocate for what they call a sustainable, low-cost uh, equilibrium, to quote some of them uh, that I cite in the in the piece, when uh, it's it's been anything but uh, in Afghanistan for American service members, for Afghan soldiers, and for Afghan civilians.
1: So, one of the things that I'd like to just delve a little bit deeper into is this an issue of our own? um national identity or our an issue of our identity in far in so far as our military power and our role as like a global hegemon.
2: Yeah, they're both they both become entangled, mm-hmm. right? Right. That's and nice. Historical process. I hasten to say since I'm a historian. Yes. So, you know, there's a lot of writing about how the United States from its birth envisioned itself as a providential country We'd now call this American exceptionalism, that Mm it had a mission to be at least an example to the world, a light unto the nations, uh, and that's a a problematic national identity. Um, But uh, that identity remained somewhat separate from the use of armed force for quite some time, at least when it comes to a, a global scale united states really didn't decide to become the preeminent military power globally and give up its previous aversion to so-called entanglements in europe and asia until world war ii uh, that's what uh the subject of my uh, actual scholarship uh my book tomorrow the world is about it documents that process of decision making that occurred early in the war and then the process of public legitimation And so it's at that point where the presence of America in the world uh, comes to be identified with the deployment of armed force and the deployment of armed force anywhere. So Americans often have this expectation that others are going to follow America's script, America's idea of what they should do, um, because that's who we are. Uh, and so I think a lot of the reactions are are, are driven by this unfortunate conflation of American uh, identity with the, uh, the use of force.
1: And I just want to follow up on one thing because there's two terms that you use that I think are fascinating because they seem to be such a dichotomy to me. It's the decision to be who we are versus our own identity and how these two become intertangled is very interesting to me. And I mean, I do think that there is a distinction to be made between a military operation with a specific tactical advantage or a tactical goal rather versus a nation building, which is a completely different thing and borders on imperialism in certain contexts. So how do we prevent either that evolution? Is this change something that's going to be reframing how America positions itself or is our national uh, frustration with our current situation and our Lack of willingness to identify this as a defeat going to hinder that.
2: I am worried about um, how we'll remember this war, or if we'll remember this war. I mean, already on on CNN, I'm, I've now heard today about the the host of Jeopardy. Uh, you know, it was in, now he's out. You know, so we're already kind of moving into lighter subjects uh, as. <laughs> Americans are being evacuated from Afghanistan uh, in a in a in a perilous situation. And hopefully we'll see Afghans uh, also be evacuated from from the country in, in significant numbers. So I really worry whether in two weeks um, this seems like the, the biggest. Um, uh, uh, this seems like apocalypse uh, if you listen to the media over the last week. But I wonder whether how much we'll be talking about this in. In, in two weeks. So I really worry about either uh, forgetting the war or um, uh, the country or at least a significant part of the country believing that um, we were stabbed in the back by civilian leaders uh, who didn't do what was necessary to win the war. Uh, can, yeah.
0: Can I, can, can, I, can I put the um, hawkish position a little bit more charitably? Okay, so I, I feel like it's, so did, I, did you ever know Nuno Montero, who, who, who tragically passed away um, last year, he was a, he was an IR um, theorist at, at Yale, and I remember him telling me that the fundamental idea of um, in, in the American foreign policy establishment is that America, because it has the might that it has, it is under a moral obligation to use it for good. Um, And so the first one is like the re, it's not that we want supremacy for supremacy's sake, okay? We want supremacy because there are people whose human rights are being abused, who are being oppressed. So that's the first thing. Number two is that there's a kind of escalatory logic to humanitarian intervention that sucks people in. And it kind of has like a couple of stages. First, you know, gotta do something so establish a no-fly zone. Then after you establish a no-fly zone, you have to kind of use some force in humanitarian intervention. And then it turns out that humanitarian intervention is kind of um, impotent without regime change because you have to kind of change the regime that's oppressing people. So as soon as regime change, and then you kind of have to create allies um, and support the government. And then you can't leave your allies um, to alone, um, and so there's a kind of logic there that gets you sucked in, um, and so I feel like, it, does that not sound plausible to you? Because I feel like it, that's a more charitable way of putting it than than the way you just put it.
2: Right, I, I think that's entirely consistent with, um, with what I've said, so I, I think the way you put it is <laughs> excellent, and I think that I'm not, questioning people's bad faith or anything like that. I don't can't verify that not interested in going there, you know, Um, and I think uh, you really put it very well in describing this kind of um, enclosed uh, coherent uh, worldview where it's not so much on, on some level, it's not that we disagree about our assessments of, you know, the, 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 the facts on the ground in Afghanistan that, you know, I think the Afghan government is not capable of defending itself or they do or something like that. Um, you know, the, the fact is if you believe the United States has a responsibility to, um, use military power to save others, uh, wherever they are, um, you can always say, well, the problem is, isn't that we did too little, it's that we did too, uh, sorry, not that we did too much, it's that we did too little. And so, uh, okay, if um, 2,500 troops on the ground wasn't enough, what that's what Biden inherited from the Trump administration, let's have a new search, uh, which Bill Kristol called for less than, I think it was about a week ago, or less than a week ago to this, to this day. And now there's no more government to, on behalf of which to uh, to effectuate a surge. So on some level, this is it's interesting that our discussion has gone so much to identity and worldview. Uh, that is what is at stake. But let me add one more thing. Well, 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 while, while crediting this view with coherence, um, it also produces extreme arbitrariness in practice because. Mm. Um, It it is simply impossible and uh, never will be the case that the United States is going to impartially use military power to save others based on the scale of suffering here or there. Just look at, uh, you know, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, the site of the worst uh, ethnic violence uh, at the turn of the century where almost nobody, even as there was agitation for humanitarian intervention elsewhere, we intervened in Kosovo kosovo for example almost nobody thought we should intervene in the drc uh so this is uh, for someone like me who, who likes to think about things systematically and uh think about well if we're going to apply this principle to afghanistan you know where else would we apply it to uh this is quite uh quite a troubling view uh and it, it tends to kind of favor inertia Uh, because we've been doing something, well, we've created our own obligation to do it here, but for some reason, we're not doing it there. No one can really justify that.
1: And just even to put a further point on it, a lot of the rhetoric or not rhetoric, I won't say rhetoric, but a lot of the statements that are being made now went from helping the Afghani people at large to now we have a moral obligation to help those who helped us. So it's becoming a narrower moral obligation by the day. and I thought I I just thought that would
0: be. Yeah, I, that's an excellent point, Genevieve. And and we do. I mean, we I, mean, I, I you, of course, would agree with that. What you would let me ask it an in informal question: Would you agree with that? Because I I would agree that there is a reliance interest and we ought I believe that we have a moral obligation to help those who yes. have helped us and have relied on us. But perhaps you disagree.
2: Yeah, I actually just uh, wrote a piece yesterday as well out in oh. uh, New York magazine that talks about uh, how, um, you know, welcoming refugees uh, ought to replace the use of coercion uh, as a new American humanitarianism.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: start is obviously in this moment with Afghanistan.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and one of the problems I have with uh, our interventionism and the interventionist mindset, uh, is that it channels humanitarian impulses into something that I think is not quite humanitarianism. It's a desire to stop evil, to stand up to wrongdoers, which is not the same as a desire to help people. Um, and, uh, of course leads us to undertake actions that the best you can say about them is that they have a risk when you're bombing other people of doing more harm than good. Um, Even if they work out well, uh, you've still inflicted violence. Uh, And yet we don't, you know, welcoming in refugees, um, providing vaccines, things like this just seem to matter so much less Mm -hmm. uh, in our uh, imagination of what America is in the world.
0: Um, What I think is so, interesting is that it's the first time in my lifetime or at least my conscious lifetime because there's a question i want to ask um about vietnam which is that it's remarkable to me that the american people are as sick of war as they are not remarkable that if you've gone like 20 years in these intractable um, conflicts far away that people would get frustrated with it. It's just that I haven't seen it. Um, do you feel like the, like the, um, the kind of, um, attitude of, uh, or the consensus of American people, um, is, 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 um, more anti-war now, um, than, um, like Ever or it, it was Vietnam a, um, a similar a similar feeling?
2: Such a good question. Um, I'm trying to figure out um, the particularity of this moment and the last couple decades in this respect. Um, one thing that you know, sometimes I'm struck by the extent of anti-war sentiment there is, especially considering that. Um, If you watch mainstream cable outlets and read the op-ed pages, you're not getting a whole lot from our elites to shape people's opinions. And yet, I don't think Barack Obama would have won against Hillary Clinton in 2008. Uh, I'm not sure Donald Trump would have won uh, the Republican nomination or the presidency in 2016. Uh, if people had been as hawkish as the elites and, um, you know, at least trusted uh, the elites judgment that these people were untested and, you know, really risky for our national security, uh, American voters didn't think so. So we've seen a kind of bubbling up, I think, from the bottom of um, I don't know if it's anti-war sentiment, but maybe it's anti-endless war sentiment. Um, that has been consequential, and now you see presidents as different uh, as Trump and Biden uh, begin and execute uh, a, a full ground troop withdrawal from Afghanistan at the same time. So, so you know, sometimes I'm struck by this, and the slogan of you know uh, opposing endless or forever wars, that I think is without a whole lot of historical precedent. Um, you know, there was a permanent war perpetual war has been around in the 20th century usually by dissenter types uh, it's mm. much further into the mainstream now but you know in terms of mass mobilization the fact is that american wars don't affect too many americans so it would just be wrong to compare you know uh anti-war activity in this country to the level that it was uh, during the Vietnam War or in the wake of World War One. I.
1: I, I do, th- I do have a hard time reconciling the idea of America being war weary because it's just so not in our consciousness generally. And to mm-hmm. kind of ask your opinion about that, how does that play into our identity? Because again, Americans see ourselves as the the with American exceptionalism as a lens. And we do, when confronted with things, our impulse is, well, we can fix that. So, how, how would you respond to that?
2: Yeah. Um, well, this is, I think, something to write a book about. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> I piece through some of this from the last three decades uh, as I write my next book. Um, you know, in part, I think our experiences with foreign policy shape American identity at home and our, our view of ourselves. Uh, for example, you know, Donald Trump cited um, wars in the Middle East uh, as an illustration of how the country was being taken advantage of by foreigners and a globalist political class. Um, that was a pretty creative presentation of things. Um, And, you know, which way the causality is going, you know, is it our identity being projected outward and affecting our foreign policy or the opposite, it's not always easy to determine. You know, I think from about 2004, 2005 onward, the public understood something was deeply wrong about the way that um, foreign policy leaders uh, were conducting our foreign policy. They could see that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were not going well, and then they came to a conclusion that they were really quite uh, horrific mistakes. There's a huge amount of anger and and distrust. And although when we talk about populism or uh, anti-establishment sentiment, we usually focus on the uh, financial crisis and the aftermath of the Great Recession, I think our foreign policy mistakes, which are quite coterminous um, with with the economic narrative, um, have played a, a really important role.
0: I, I want. I, I mean, it, the kind of fascinating thing um, it, about Vietnam is like the, the the narrative changed when Reagan came in to office. So, like before that, my sense was that people were saying, like, like, why did you have us go over, sacrifice our boys um, in you know somewhere in Southeast Asia? Uh, we it, it was an immoral war. We we fought it in an immoral way. It, we should have never been there. And then some I don't know like it flipped in 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 the 1980s when the narrative, at least it seemed to me, became the generals or, or or the politicians wouldn't let our boys win. We could have won had they just let us you know let loose. Um, which is a pretty amazing thing to say, given you know the, the the military behavior, some some military behavior during the war, which was quite horrific. Um, I just wonder if the same thing is going to happen here, or maybe our memories are so short, none of us care. I, I don't know. I,
2: um, yeah, it would be a terrible thing to say we should be so lucky if there's a stab in the back myth that uh, arises with respect to Afghanistan. Uh, <laughs> it's probably better for people not to to, to, to move on and to have a, a dangerous myth persist. But I think we're already seeing that myth being born. Uh, I, I think okay. people think that uh, this is on Joe Biden uh, singularly, that the war was uh, sustainable, that an equilibrium had been achieved. At low cost, before uh, Biden withdrew or before Trump, the Trump administration concluded a deal to withdraw with the with the Taliban. What they are saying is uh, our war fighters knew what to do, and uh, victory or at least uh, non-defeat was uh, snatched away by civilian leaders. And maybe uh, you can blame the public also if you want to blame the public who didn't have the stomach for it. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people are saying now. Uh,
0: we 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 had a guest on earlier this week, um, uh, Mark Polymeropoulos. Um, hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, who um, r- r- really um, knowledgeable um, uh, a person? Um, uh, he was a, a excellent guy, um, and he he said, like, why didn't we just leave? two thousand to three thousand roughly you know um special forces in there to help prop up the government that's all we needed we could have withdrawn everything else at you know that i i wonder what the counter argument to that would be what would you say to that stephen
2: right um so uh We had gotten force levels down to 2,500 by the end of the Trump administration. And over the past uh, year plus, uh, there haven't been Americans killed in action. So you might say, wow, you know, why do we screw up a good thing? (laughs) Americans (laughs) hadn't been killed in action because we had agreed to withdraw them with the Taliban. So the Taliban were killing plenty of Afghans uh, they were fighting this war and fighting this war successfully making gains. Uh, but, uh, they weren't targeting the United States cause they wanted to see the United States withdraw. And we had promised to withdraw. So, uh, and the Taliban has been making gains for years. We haven't been holding an equilibrium in the country. Uh, we've been losing, uh, we've been losing for some time. So that's the reality. So the choice that president Biden faced, Um, before he made his decision uh, and announced it in April um, was realistically we withdraw fully in accordance with our agreement to withdraw or we escalate. We put more troops in uh, to uh, have any chance of even just sustaining uh, the government as it was let alone scoring some kind of battlefield victories, since everybody understood that the Taliban was gearing up for the uh, spring and summer fighting season. Mm. Question was, were they gonna be targeting American troops or would the troops come home? So I think when the president says in his defenses of the withdrawal, that realistically uh, he would have had to escalate the war, um, I, I think that's actually quite correct.
0: I got I, I one last question before. We, are you surprised that Biden did it?
2: A little bit, yeah. Um, I didn't expect, so I mean, his his position in the campaign, you know, he said he wanted to end the war. But that's not what you look for when you want to assess what's he going to do. Um, he said he wanted to, you know, withdraw most ground troops from Afghanistan and the Middle East. He said he wanted to focus uh, solely on the mission of counterterrorism, not nation-building. So I think he has shifted his position uh, when confronted with uh, just the choice that, that we were talking about a, a, a minute ago. Uh, and um, I think, you know, one of the remarkable things uh, is just to see how many He's got a set of experienced foreign policy hands. They are now taking actions that. They probably wouldn't have imagined a decade ago, right? Um, These are people largely who worked uh, in the Obama Biden administration a decade ago and who carried out a surge in Afghanistan uh, where our troop levels got up to about 100000. Uh, so to see them make different decisions now, I think, is really powerful. They themselves have come to a, a different place uh, because of uh, uh, realities in Afghanistan, realities in our country, and and uh, different priorities around the world.
1: Okay. So I'm going to bring in some of our uh, great chorus members for some questions. Paula, the floor Hi. is yours. Thank you. Um, nice to meet you. Um, so my question is, how do you think our Western allies feel about the evacuation? I know in the remarks today, Biden was quite rosy. However, I think we've seen videos from Theresa May in Parliament. There was the Bloomberg article that just dropped in the Telegraph article. So I think some people are thinking he's being a little bit too rosy. But putting aside whether or not we should have pulled out a, just simply on the evacuation itself.
2: Yeah, it has been striking to see uh, so many denunciations of Biden coming from, um, I don't want to say our allies, uh, they're really specifically, uh, you know, Western European uh, allies and capitals there. Um,
0: right. You the know, UK, the UK parliament censored correct. Um, uh, uh, Biden.
2: Correct. Um, well, I imagine this is coming from a place of we trusted you we deferred to you the united states for two decades and it hasn't worked out and now they're upset uh with the consequences but they made choices for two decades uh to defer to the united states and if they want to um, have more strategic autonomy and there are ongoing discussions in europe about uh, strategic autonomy for uh, the EU and for Europe uh, as a whole on defense matters, I would support them. But I think venting at this stage is not that helpful and not a very deep reflection on what's actually happened. Um, uh, you know, they Europeans, these are uh, uh, the UK, Germany, France um, are not poor countries um i've been there i've been to all of them no,
0: th- yeah no the the they, uh, the uk has a lot of castles
2: yeah the castles <laughs> um, yeah. Trains, uh yeah they
0: do they're...
2: germany you know yeah. good stuff even in the uk the trains are okay you know yeah um, better yeah. than here. um if they felt this strongly about um transforming afghanistan uh into a western style democracy they had the option for uh, literally two decades of uh, stepping up and um, contributing much, much more than they did. Um, they didn't.
0: I, I'm just like amazed about like the, the, the anthropomorphizing of American credibility. Um, you, know, like you would, it's like people talk about the market as a person. People talk about American credibility as a person. <laughs> um uh I'm just really curious do you think I mean not you think um what is your view has there been an has America intervened in a humanitarian it, it, for humanitarian purposes post-world War two um, um and it's worked out um, and I, I know I, 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 I let's for a second just bracket the Case of Kosovo because I think that that's very. I think it's besides Kosovo, and then we could talk about Kosovo. Um, do you think? I mean, it's, it feels to me like a like a real like goose egg.
2: There just aren't that many um, actual instances of the United States uh, using force primarily for humanitarian purposes. Um, uh, it, it,
0: it, for, not primarily. Stated one of the main justifications being right. humanitarian intervention. Uh, obviously, there's all, uh, no no country goes to war solely for humanitarian purposes.
2: Right. You know, um, you could uh, you could say the intervention in the uh, in the Balkans in the defense of Bosnia um, would be a, probably your best bet, uh, and obviously Kosovo, we can have a we can have a discussion about that. But I also think let let me object to the question a little bit. I mean, it's a fair question. But you know, I actually get that question a lot like, let's let's scrounge around in history and look really hard to find maybe the one or two cases in which the United States using force has achieved a positive humanitarian outcome. Well, if we find them, then what Um, I think the cases of the use of force achieving disastrous humanitarian outcomes uh, outweigh whatever the positive cases might be. And that uh, is, I think, the bottom line.
0: Yeah. Go ahead, Genevieve.
1: Well, Well, should we be at all afraid of a reframing of things to come within the region specifically? Because now you have the Taliban acting as the de facto government of the state which brings in a lot of international law complications. And also they've already started to use force against persons that uh, others targeted killings. There's some reports about dispersing protesters. You have some reports of them actually attacking like US military individuals. Um, I don't have like sources offhand to, but these are what's circulating, especially on the Twitterverse. And so, the longer that this goes on, why wouldn't we just be back there again with a legitimate reason, per like our, the laws of armed conflict?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a you know terrible situation. The Taliban uh, are brutal. I think we all know that, and so the, the concern now. We, earlier, we had an ongoing civil war with foreign intervention and Af- many afghans were being killed and wounded all the time even if the news media didn't care about it in the united states um now it appears that the civil war has concluded uh, though you know you, never know
0: you never know you really don't know
2: Backly, At this point in time the foreign intervention is stopping and the civil war has stopped and the concern then becomes the repression of the taliban and the government that is ultimately formed which will be taliban dominated um that's a different kind of concern from a wartime concern that we had before right um and i also think you know there are a lot many worrying reports uh over the past week of course um but often civil wars end in a much bloodier way than appears to have happened so far. And the Taliban is in a period where it would like to obtain some international legitimacy, unite the country, prevent further protests uh, from challenging its authority, prevent the emergence of an insurgency or something. So I think we shouldn't, they have an incentive to, to restrain themselves. Uh, and, uh, we should be dubious that the Taliban are actually going to live up to some of the things that they've.
1: but the incentive in that way is like, who are they actually seeking recognition from? Because that, it's probably not going to be the United States they want as a strategic partner. We're not in the region. There's other people who are better tolerant and other states that are better tolerant of how they proceed. That would be probably more willing to deal with them. So. Sh- that doesn't do too much to mitigate my fears about the humanitarian crisis.
2: Right. No, I, you know, I think uh, this is a humanitarian crisis and it's unfortunately not one that's going to be solved as such, but one that hopefully the United States and other states and the international community can, can mitigate as best we can. I I do think the Taliban, um, they were deposed by the United States. Two decades ago and the biden administration has uh warned the taliban that it will uh punish them uh if they uh obstruct our evacuation at least of americans uh so far uh the biden administration i think has also made clear i think this is very credible that uh if uh, it has intelligence pointing to you know, the reconstitution of Al Qaeda in the country that would be plotting attacks on the United States, that the United States would intervene uh, to uh, to mitigate that threat. So uh, I just because the United States is withdrawing ground troops completely doesn't mean that's the end of um, war making uh, in the country. Uh, and I also think that also means that the United States and the Taliban are going to continue to have this relationship where they know that the the, the other can can do some damage uh, to to themselves.
1: Okay. Richard, Richard, the floor is yours. Hi. So i um,
0: I was reading your New York magazine piece that I guess it came out yesterday, and um, you write write about the oversized role that the U.S. military plays in the thinking of a lot of of our policymakers. And so I'm wondering, uh, do you have a sense of the extent to which that mindset has um, penetrated the State Department? And also, what do you see as the necessary conditions, changes, whatever that would actually turn the tide in a different direction so that we really start beginning to conceive foreign policy in terms of diplomacy, foreign aid, and the like before we consider
2: military uh, force? Terrific question. Um, I know that there are people in government uh, and in the State Department who are sympathetic uh, to the view that you've articulated, who wanna see us um, lead with diplomacy, uh, aid, uh, assistance and use force, uh, either as a last resort or simply not in many cases. Um, What I can't do is kind of take a good poll of of the State Department uh, or generalize from the partial experiences that, that I've, I've had. But, you know, clearly this view is is on the ascent in the American political system. Uh, broadly speaking, you know, I'd say it's been at least a decade um, uh, of uh, of slow, uh, and sometimes imperceptible, and then in fits and spurts, quite perceptible uh, ascent. Um, but it would take a whole lot to get us to a place where the United States um, was acting like a nation among nations uh, and not uh, the world's uh, superpower or policeman. Um, it would take, I, I don't think it really happens just through a kind of change of mindset. Uh, I don't think it can happen when the United States is uh, spending $750 billion per year on the Pentagon, stationing its forces on something like 800 Bases around the world and dividing the world, much of the world up into allies uh, who are subordinate, who were sworn to protect by force and implicit or explicit enemies. I think that grand strategy of global dominance is a uh, kind of self-perpetuating thing. It generates uh, resistance. It generates adversaries. uh, And that's why we keep getting more and more enemies Uh, you know, over the course of my lifetime, when you'd think that after the the Soviet Union collapsed, we might be able to enjoy living at peace. We've got two oceans. Uh, We've got uh, friendly and weaker neighbors on our borders, Canada and Mexico. Uh, We've got nuclear weapons. Uh, We've got a robust economy. Uh, So we don't have to do this. We can make different choices, but there are a whole lot of uh, incentives and ideas that are pointing in a very different direction.
0: Uh, even though I'm, uh, before Matteo comes out, I just wanna say that even though I'm Genevieve's younger brother, I'm still old enough to remember um, <laughs> the, the, the late 1990s when the New York Times ran series after series on the peace dividend, how we were gonna spend the trillions of dollars that we now saved um from going to war um we're, what we were going to use it for like all the great things we're going to use high speed rail um climate change i mean all these things and like you know i mean it's just extremely sad mateo um uh, floor is yours
3: thank you um uh thanks for having me on and thanks for being with us professor um, so my question, I had a couple. Sorry, we just pull it back up.
1: Matteo, you have a couple and you have some time so you can ask a couple.
3: Oh, excellent, thanks Genevieve. Uh, so my first question uh, is something I've been having a little bit of trouble thinking through for myself and that's uh, the significance of the Afghan forces relative failure to defend themselves uh, in the moral calculus of you know, this whole situation. Uh, I'm having a bit of trouble thinking about it. How that affects it, and hand in hand with that, um, the significance of their explicitly asking us to remain. I'm just curious how you think about those issues.
2: Right. Um, yeah, I think we have to distinguish between the state of the Afghan forces prior to about two weeks ago and what happened in the last couple of weeks, right? Um, what happened in the last couple of weeks was a world historic um, melting away of, um, what was on paper, a robust fighting force, um, where clearly a tipping point was reached. Um, deals were cut. Calculations were made simultaneously around the country that, uh, the Taliban were going to win this war decisively. And, uh, and we see the sudden result that, that we, that we got, um, you know, prior to then, um, look, I don't think it was altogether, uh, uh, certain that the Afghan army wasn't going to fight, uh, for itself. Um, you know, there was an outside chance. I remember thinking, uh, in, uh, April when Biden announced the U S withdrawal that, you know, the United States now withdrawing, perhaps the will to fight would would emerge. Obviously, that did not that did not happen. Um, but uh, there were so many, you know, Afghans who did fight uh, and put everything on the line uh, in defense of of this government. And I think it's a you know, tragic thing that the government has fallen. And of course, now we see a we, we do have to come to grips with why the war uh, wasn't successful why I think it was unwinnable. And that does involve understanding the corruption uh, in the Afghan government and forces and among the U.S. uh, military contractors and the military industrial complex. Uh, You know, it involves uh, understanding why uh, uh, Afghan leaders uh, didn't do some of the things that might've allowed Uh, their uh, state to to survive and inspire loyalty among Afghans rather than uh, the conclusion that many reached was which was that, well, don't like the Taliban, but both are both are bad uh, and we definitely don't like war. Um, But for us, there's also this other layer to it in the United States, which is um, this um, political uh, discourse, which is how do we account for the war not going well uh, and indeed failing? Uh, and some are blaming the Afghans, right, uh, as the as the reason for that. Um, this is a long standing uh, pattern. Uh, it's one that President Trump sometimes appealed to uh, when, you know, he seemed to suggest that um, People in the Middle East were not interested in our freedom. And so it's really their fault that they're not taking the gift that we would bestow upon them. Uh, So I think we have to somehow thread this needle where we come to an understanding of the problems that existed uh, in the Afghan government uh, that made the war uh, unsustainable. But at the same time, uh, make sure that we're accounting for our mistakes. Uh, our choices fundamentally, this was a war we chose to wage uh, in the way that we did uh, without making it seem like, you know, we're too good for the Afghans or something.
3: Thanks, I think that makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, One of my other questions was uh, in reference to a term that you used uh, in your answer to that last one, which is unwinnable, why does, why do I say, why do wars need to be winnable? But that's really a sub question of the more general. Why do policies need to end? Uh, why can't a permanent forever with a capital F policy, uh, one of which might be a war, or I'll say violent foreign intervention because war does have a connotation of eventually coming to an end. Are, are, are forever policies ever acceptable or is it, something that you'd say is categorically uh, shouldn't be a part of the way we think about what uh, we do can
0: can I just jump in to say that uh, uh, not that you need me to say but that's an excellent question and it it, it like we don't it, like we would never say um you know uh, like why we why do we still have police um you know like <laughs> We've been fighting, we've been fighting criminals for millennia enough already. Um, That doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to be a problem. The question is why is that not an acceptable attitude to have vis-a-vis war?
2: And I think that the difference between having a police and having the military engaged in forever war is that um, uh, we would like to think that we're not an empire. So if we're going to be engaged uh, perpetually in armed conflict in another country, uh, propping up, uh, uh, you know, some authorities in that country uh, while killing others in that country, uh, to me, that um, is incompatible with um, something to go back to our the beginning of our discussion, something that's also there in our own identity, which is that Uh, We don't see ourselves as an empire, uh, but rather as an independent state. And we would like others also to be uh, independent states. Um, You know, the other thing, the other problem with forever war on a different level is, um, you know, if it's forever, as I think that the Afghanistan war became, that means we have a an objective that can't be fulfilled. Um, now again, maybe you think it's worth killing, um, indefinitely killing some Afghan women and girls in order to protect other Afghan women and girls. And you could take that view. Um, I, I don't, and I don't think that push comes to shove. Many Americans, um, would actually mount a really deep defense of that of that argument, even though that is the argument being advanced by a lot of people.
1: And Matteo, can you ask your preemptive uh, question?
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, thanks. Let's just read it. Oh, I was saying, um, preemptive defense and other concepts like it, I think, are often rightfully mocked by people like you and also people like me uh, as being uh, apparently incoherent. But how bad do we have to let things get before we involve ourselves? Uh, Or is it only after um, provocation on the mainland or something close to it?
2: So I actually think that uh, preemptive uh, strikes are appropriate. Um, I think that that term was abused by the George W. Bush administration because there is a legal warrant for preemption uh and what the bush administration meant when they sometimes use that word was prevention which i think is not justifiable so preempt occurs when uh you have credible uh intelligence uh that uh, someone's about to attack you uh, or that attack might be in motion incoming uh in that circumstance i absolutely think uh, that it's appropriate to, to use force. Uh, and indeed that might, uh, you know, create a situation where no attack on you actually occurred, but you've attacked somebody else. I nonetheless would, uh, would support that. And so there could be a circumstance in Afghanistan where, you know, if, uh, I think there are a lot of reasons to think this won't happen, but, you know, if the new government allows Al Qaeda to, uh, operate, and um, we have intelligence that Al-Qaeda is plotting another 9-11 attack uh, or a smaller attack, for that matter, on the U.S. homeland. I would, you know, if I were a decision maker, I would say we need to act to disrupt uh, this plot. That would be preemption. The problem is prevention where, you know, you just basically make an argument that uh, we don't like these people. And, you know, they've said death to America. And, you uh, you know, at some point we think they're going to attack us or do something bad that we cannot specify. And therefore we think we can attack them. That's just an open-ended, um, warrant to, to make war without justification. And if you try to, uh, extend that principle to everyone else in the world, then everyone gets to go to war with everyone else, whatever they want. (laughs)
0: Yeah. I, 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 would just say that, like, I feel like there's two visions um, and I feel like the two visions that are in tension with each other and clash in American in post-war American history, and which in some sense is a kind of a clash between work I've done with Ona and your work, um, is like, what, does, what do we stand for? Do we stand for using force to protect people or do we stand for the moral obligation for restraint, not to use force, even though wrong is happening and um, those two things are in deep tension with each other and in some sense that's what's kind of playing out you know on the one hand none of us want to see what's going to happen happen on the other hand uh, what's the alternative and it's just not the right way to run a country um, to be policing other countries. Um, this is just not good for international peace and security. Um, actually, it's terrible for it. Um, and when I asked my question before about humanitarian intervention, that was a leading question because I actually am not somebody who, I think it's one of the great achievements of the post-World uh, World War II order that what was considered obvious that you could use force turned out to be illegal. and. Now, you know, there have been various attempts to do it. And it always ends poorly, uh, or almost always ends poorly. I guess one question I want to ask in the 32nd lightning round question, um, because we have to stop now. I just want to ask you, like, God forbid, God forbid, there's a terrorist attack in the United States. Is your gut, you know, and people, and so, and it's kind of traced back to the to something happening in Afghanistan um, do you think there's there's a, a temperament um, uh, to go back in um, what's your what's your what's your just gut response
2: If that happened then yes I think um, we would want to act uh, to retaliate and to <sighs> disrupt uh, any future plans that uh, whoever attacked us might have. What I would hope, hope for though, is that we would learn something from the previous go-round, that it's one thing to uh, take a legitimate military action against a genuine threat. Uh, And I do not say that the entire war in Afghanistan was a mistake. I think the opening objectives were correct, uh, but that we would focus on the security issue and not trying to prove that we can remake another country.
1: We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us today. This was a wonderful conversation. Um, We will be back Monday at five o'clock. I would do the countdown for you. But unfortunately, I'm a bit frazzled today and my (laughs) math skills are not up to par. So thank you, everyone. And we will see you 70. I'm gonna try 70, 70 hours and 55 minutes from now. Okay, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And until then, Scott, we can't
0: we can't have fun anymore. But we can have as we had all this week, serious um, uh, moral reflection on very difficult um, uh, um, global issues. And I thank you, Stephen, for coming and for a wonderful show, thank you. Thank you, Genevieve. And man, did we F up this place today.
1: (laughs) I couldn't focus. I was so worried about all the chaos we were causing.
0: And Kate will not recognize the place when they get back. Oh my God.
1: Oh, just wait. I changed the blue go live button to the red go live button.
0: Uh, Every day. Okay, have a good week.